Our catechism instruction this evening is based on question 77. Question 77 of the catechism, where the question or the answer basically quotes the passage of scripture which we read together. So the question is where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup? And then what follows is in the institution of the Lord's Supper and then a, a quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we're very familiar with. And then the next paragraph of that answer is a quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is going to be the focus of our message this evening. So, this evening then we hope to study, uh, continue our study of the Lord's Supper. And in the, in the uh, catechism, we are now asked the same question that we were asked on a previous occasion about baptism. In question 71, the question was asked, where is this taught us in the Bible? In other words, the teaching that we had on baptism. And you'll remember that the institution of baptism was given us in the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, the assumption here is that nothing can be a sacrament for the church of God unless it is explicitly commanded us in the Bible. That's why we don't follow the Roman Catholic teaching of seven sacraments, right? They have quite a list of sacraments. We have just two sacraments in the Reformed churches, actually in all the Protestant churches, uh, not because we're, we're uh, opposed to uh, visible things in the church of God, but because we are bound by the word of God and we stick to the two sacraments that are given us in the Bible, namely the baptism and the Lord's table. Now, in our study of the Lord's Supper, we began by considering the significance of a meal in the Old Testament. That was our first sermon on the Lord's Supper. We saw already in the Old Testament that a meal was not just a thing. Sometimes it was, but not just a thing to resolve hunger, but that it was often the symbol of a ratification of a covenant. You might say the, the solemnization, or today we might use the word uh, closing on a, on a covenant, closing on a deal. And, and we saw that between Isaac and Abimelech when they came together, and after they made that treaty of fellowship together, that covenant, they sat down to a meal to ratify, to seal to both sides the new relationship that existed between them. We saw that also with the 70 elders that went up to Mount Sinai on uh, with Moses. And you'll remember, uh, again, they must have been filled with terror at the thought of going up a mountain where God had just told them, anybody who sets foot on this mountain will be destroyed, will be cut off. And yet now God calls them to come up the mountain. And when they come up that mountain, they find a table spread. And they sit down and they ate and drank with God himself. So the significance of a meal. Now last week, we went to the other side, not to what God does to us in, in putting a meal before us and making that overture of a covenant to us, but now in our, our action, in receiving that covenant. And last week, we used the example of the Canaanitish woman who came before Jesus, and Jesus turned his back on her. But the woman, with all the faith that Christ himself had given her, pressed her case and came forward and claimed the blessing. And remember that remarkable answer that she gave. True Lord, 
In other words, true, I am a dog, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Just as I am, without one plea, was the cry of that woman. She had no claim on the mercy of God. And every time God spreads that table before us, we all stand on the same ground. We all stand on the same, in the same position as lost sinners condemned to death for our sin, but having this covenant set before us in this meal. And we come forward and we sit and we partake of that meal and we embrace the covenant that God has made with us. Now we come, friends, again, to the same place where we were with baptism. Where is that in the New Testament? We come to the New Testament scriptures. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup? Now, when we come to the New Testament, this is very easy. Even the children can find where Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. We have the simplest account given us in Mark 14 and verse 22. You'll remember that at the Passover meal that they were eating, that they were celebrating together, at some point in that Passover meal, it's not entirely clear when, the Lord Jesus transitioned out of the Passover and into the new sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And in Mark 14 and verse 22, we read, And while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from, the, from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many. And so we have the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's repeated again in, in Matthew and in Luke. Luke adds this interesting uh, adjective. He said, Mark said, This is my blood of the covenant. Luke adds, this is my blood of the new covenant. That's significant. I believe we, we spoke about that in the past. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, so just one chapter after our text for this evening, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul adds in verses 25 and 26, that Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then when he instituted the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So very clearly that Jesus intended for his people to continue the use of this object lesson, the use of this sacrament in the church, that bread is to be broken, wine is to be poured out as symbols of his body and blood, and that this is to be done as often as you eat from it. In other words, it is to be a repeated thing in the life of the church. So that's very simple then, that uh, baptism is in the Great Commission, commanded to be a repeated observance in the church. The Lord's Supper here is commanded to be a repeated observance of the church. But notice, my friends, that the catechism goes deeper than that. The Catechism is not just asking us this evening, where did Christ institute the Lord's Supper? Again, read carefully. Really, uh, this sermon tonight is more about the question here, even than the answer. Notice in question 77, is, it says, where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup? That's the question that the Catechism is putting to us this evening. And it's pointing us to two chapters 
of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So let's turn now then for the rest of the sermon to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And let's try to understand why our catechism is pointing us to this Scripture as proof of the statement that Christ promises to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup. Now, the first thing we notice, my friends, uh, it happens many times in our study of theology, is that in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is not intending to teach the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. That is not his subject matter in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul is warning the Corinthian church against idolatry. It's a very interesting chapter. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you see the beginning, really, of this section. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul, in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, and then he carries on to explain that. You see, evidently what had happened is that some believers in the Corinthian church had written to Paul a letter. And now Paul, you might say, he has that letter in front of him. And he has all the different matters that they've asked him about. And so you find throughout 1 Corinthians that Paul will say, now about this, now about this, now about this. And what he's doing there is he's answering each of these questions, each of these matters that the Corinthian believers have put before him, he's answering by way of letter. So that's what we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Evidently, the Corinthian church at least some members of the Corinthian church, had asked Paul, what about food that has been used in pagan worship services? Again, the the, the historical situation here is that the pagans would also have meals in in their worship services. And any of the leftover food would then be sold in the market and maybe sold at a a discounted rate so that the, the Christian believers of Corinth generally of the poorer lot of society, would go there and buy that food and eat it. But you can be sure that there were some conscience pangs there. Should we really be eating this food that has been offered to idols? Now, Paul deals with that situation. His answer, of course, is that don't worry about the idol worship. Go ahead and eat it. It doesn't matter. But, and again, you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 8. But what's interesting is that Paul goes on in this section to teach the Corinthian believers that just because they can eat the food that came from the pagan worship services does not mean that they have the right to participate in those worship services. That, Paul says, is idolatry. Now, if there's one sin that the Jewish people, and not all the Christians in Corinth were Jews, in fact, a minority of them were, but still, anybody who could have read the Bible would have known that idolatry was a sin that is especially heinous in God's sight. And so we have his exhortation in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 7. And do not be idolaters. But before we get there, let's look at 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 1 through 4. Because look how Paul reasons here. He talks about the Israelite people and he refers back to their history. And he says, consider our fathers, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. They were all under the cloud And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
Now that's interesting that Paul says that the Jewish people were baptized. Now we often think of baptism as a New Testament thing, right? And certainly Christian baptism, being baptized into the name of Jesus, right, is a New Testament thing. But Paul says that already in the Old Testament, the people of God were baptized. When did that happen? Well, it happened when they were under the cloud. And the cloud, right, the water came down upon them. And in a sense, they were baptized. And then in verse 3, he goes on. He says, and all ate the same spiritual food. Now, my friends, just think about that for a moment. If they were all baptized, that's wonderful. But what comes in your mind, again, when you, when you have baptism so fresh in your mind from what he just said, and, then, and they all ate the same spiritual food, baptism and... It's impossible to miss it, isn't it? It's ba- He's referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper here. All the people of Israel were baptized. But Paul says they also partook of the Lord's Supper. Now, he doesn't explicitly say Lord's Supper here, but that's obviously what's in his mind. He says, and they all ate the same spiritual food. Well, that would have been the manna, right, that fell from heaven. But look at what Paul goes on. He says, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. What did they drink? For they were drinking from a spiritual rock. Remember, Moses struck the rock and the water came out, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, of course, Paul is speaking metaphorically here. He's not saying the rock was literally Christ. That's clear. But what he's saying here is that the Israelites were baptized and they partook of the Lord's Supper. They ate and drank the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. So here's Israel. They had all these spiritual privileges. They were baptized. They partook of the Lord's Supper. Again, whatever that might have meant back in those days before Christ had even come. Some pre-Christian kind of celebration of the Lord's Supper. Again, don't, don't get bogged down in those details. Paul's point here is that look at the privileges they enjoyed. The Israelites had all these privileges. But, or nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. For they were laid low in the wilderness. And these things are examples to us, he says in verse 6. And then here's the point that I already made. Do not be idolaters. And Paul, in, in the verses that follow, talks about those, uh, that idolatry. So in 1 Corinthians 10, or in yeah, 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 7 through 10, Paul talks about all these different sins, idolatry, immorality, testing the Lord, grumbling, complaining, and all these things, all these sins that they committed. And God warns the Corinthian people from falling into the same sins. So, Israel had uh, associations that were sinful. If you look at verse, uh, if you look at verse 18, if you look at verse 18, notice what Paul says here. He says, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? And here, my friends, we return then to this point that I've made already. That when Israel sat down at a meal, 
right? Which is what many of the sacrifices were in the Old Testament. They would bring a sacrifice and then they would offer part of it up to God and part of it they would eat together with the priests. And Paul says in verse 18, are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? In other words, do they not participate? Are they not united in some way to the altar? And so here you have Israel in association with God when it's done rightly. But they also were guilty of idolatry. So in a sense, God or Paul, looking back at the example of the Israelites committing idolatry, says when they were idolatry and when they participated in idolatrous worship, they were united in a sense. They were sharers or fellowshippers with those idols. Now that's bad, clearly. But now Paul brings that over in verse 14 to talk about our associations with unbelievers. Israel united themselves to idols in idol worship. They were sharers in the altar. Of course, if that was God's altar, that was a good thing. But if it was an idolatrous altar, that means they were united to that. And they were guilty of the sin of idolatry. But now Paul moves, this is my second point, flee from idolatry. And notice what he says now, because now he moves into the Lord's Supper. In verse 16, and this is our text, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Now, my friends, I don't know if you write in your Bibles or not, but if you did, you'd want to circle that word sharing because that is such an important word here. In fact, it's, a, it's almost an impossible word to translate. It means a union with. You are united with. Like a man and a woman are united in a marriage ceremony as husband and wife. And Paul says that when we eat, the, when we drink from the cup, we share, and again, don't think of sharing like, like, you know, we, we teach our children to share their things with others. No, it's we're, we're, we're joining into a union with the blood of Christ. And when we eat the bread, we are unifying ourselves. We are coming into a sacred union with the body of Christ. Now, Paul goes on to draw practical ramifications from that. And again, his whole point here is that you can't participate in idol worship. If you look at verse 20, he says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers. There's that same word, sharers. Okay, I do not want you to enter into a union with demons. Right? That's Paul's larger point. You can't participate in, in pagan worship services, guys, says Paul to the Corinthians. You can't do that. You can't sit down at the Lord's Supper Eat the bread, drink the blood, or drink the wine, which of course means you're being, you're being united with the blood of Christ and with the body of Christ. You're brought into a union with Christ. And then you can't come over here and worship at a pagan temple. And then you're brought into a union, Paul says, with demons. And he says, I don't want you to be united to demons. That's, that's contradictory. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 
Now, that's a very good point practically, and we could spend some time on that. But again, as we're studying the Lord's Supper, I want to zero in, my friends, on verse 16. What does that mean then when Paul says that we are joined or we have this sharing in or this fellowship with the blood of Christ? And I have to say, my friends, I, I, studied, I studied this a good deal. And this is a great mystery. Most of the theologians call this a sacramental union. A sacramental union. And why do they say that? Because we don't really know. It's, it's impossible. It's very mysterious. What kind of a union is this? You see, Paul uses this picture of a meal to teach us about this union. And just as we take bread and wine into our mouths, and I'm talking about literal bread, literal wine, it comes into our mouths, it goes into our stomachs, and it becomes part of our body. We're joined to it in that kind of a union. That wine and bread becomes us. And it strengthens us and nourishes us. And now Paul is teaching us that in the same way, when we sit at the Lord's Supper, we are brought into that kind of a union, whatever that is, with the body and the blood of Christ. The body and blood of Christ, we are brought into a union with it, and of course this is entirely a spiritual thing, and it nourishes us and strengthens us spiritually. Now, maybe it would be good then to first say some things about what this union is not. I put that on the outline there, not. This union is not a physical union. We would talk about the union of a husband and wife as a physical union, right? When you have a blood transfusion, you receive a physical union with blood that is not your own. No, my friends, there's nothing about the physical body and blood of Jesus that does us any good. Again, actually, we're going to talk about that more in following Lord's Days when we talk about the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. So it's not a physical union. Nor is it a union where we actually become Christ. You hear people talk about that, especially in the Eastern uh, Orthodox religion. Uh, you'll find people who talk about the deification of the believer. I'm not going to say anything more about that because that's so clearly wrong. We do not become actually Christ. But my friends, nor is it just God's omnipresence. Because God is present with us right here in this worship service. When we get our cars or go home, God is present with us because he's present everywhere. That's not the kind of union we're talking about. This is a union that is unique. It's a union that we do not enjoy right now. It is a union that we do enjoy when that table is spread and we take bread and wine into our mouths. It is a union that is unique to our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Nor is it just a union of agreement. As like I might say, you know, we had a council meeting on, on a Monday evening and we, there was a great union amongst us. Just a union of agreement. It's deeper than that. Again, uh, again the, the, the picture that Paul gives us is that of taking food into our bodies. Nor is it just a union of representation as when we say that Adam represents us in the covenant of works and Christ represents us in the covenant of grace. Now, that's true, of course. I'm not denying that. 
But I'm saying even just that does not capture all that is involved in this doctrine of a sacramental union with the body and blood of Christ. Now I put on there a a quote. Augustus Strong is the author of that quote. You can read that about 14 times and then read it another 14 times and still uh, find new... It it is a, a heavy quote. But I put in italics there. Those are my italics, by the way. By the way, in that third line there, a union of life. And I find that to be such a helpful way of thinking about this sacramental union. A union of life. The life of God comes to us when we are joined with Jesus Christ by eating and drinking at his table. A union of life. But for sure, my friends, it's a mystical union. Again, as I was studying this and really uh, despairing on how to, how to explain this or how to even describe this sacramental union, I was very encouraged to read in Ephesians 5 and verse 32, where Paul says, This mystery is great. I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The union that is between Christ and the church is a mystery. And even Paul had to step back and say, I don't understand this. I cannot plumb the depths of what this union is. A sacramental union. Now, again, in Paul's larger point here, Paul is saying you can't have that sacramental union with Christ. You can't sit at the table of the Lord and eat his body and drink his blood and then come over here and participate in a pagan worship service. Because either the one is true, or the other is true. Either you're united to Christ, or you're united to demons. They both cannot be true at the same time. But for our purposes, my friends, we have this question given us in the Catechism. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood, as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup? My friends, I trust you're satisfied to see that truth taught us in Scripture. Yes, I know it's not fully explained. I know we don't understand it completely, and our our rational scientific mind is, is so unsatisfied with that, but sometimes we just have to stop, don't we? We have to come this far and say, this is as far as we can come. This is a great mystery, said the Apostle Paul. How much more should we, my friends, stop and say, it's a great mystery. We worship God for the blessing he gives us. But the exact details of that sacramental union is kept from us. But in some way, my friends, God spiritually takes the body and blood of Christ, not the physical body and blood of Christ, but all what it represents in its being broken and that blood being poured out as an atonement for sin. God brings that to us in the Lord's Supper and joins us to it. The saving benefits of the broken body and shed blood of Christ is brought to our sinful souls. And again, I bring you back to what we talked about last week. When that woman had thrown herself at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and said, truth, Lord, I'm a dog. But couldn't there be a crumb for me on on the floor with the other dogs? And Jesus in the Lord's Supper says, no, not on the floor with the dogs, but you can sit at my table. You can have a place, sinner, guilty one, condemned one. You can have a place at this table. And I'll nourish and refresh your soul with the body and blood of Christ. What an incredible blessing 
that is. My friends, I hasten to my points of application in here. My first point is the reality of the Lord's Supper. My friends, I ask you to really think and consider in your heart and soul this evening. Do we really grasp? Do we really take seriously enough the awful, or should I say the awesome reality of what takes place when those elders walk down that aisle with bread and when we take that bread and when we take that little cup, you know, I have to say, and I I speak to myself, it's so routine for us. We down the bread, take the wine, just another Lord's Supper, we move on. Nothing too serious there. That's a sacrilege, isn't it, my friends? That is taking the name of God in vain. Do we really consider the awful thing that is taking place? I say awful, I mean that in the sense of awesome. The incredible reality of what is taking place when we take that bread into our mouths and when we take that wine into our mouths, I have to say, my friends, that many of us are rationalists on this point. By that I mean, we just see it as bread and wine. You know, there's a view common amongst many independent-style churches, a lot of Baptist churches believe this, that the Lord's Supper is just a memorial, that it's just do this in remembrance of me. Now again, It is a memorial. There's no question about that. They're not wrong in what they say. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's clearly a memorial. But this part of it, my friends, so many churches miss. So many Christians miss. Let's bring it home. So many of us miss it, my friends. That there is this mysterious union that takes place in the Lord's Supper that many of us completely miss because it's so routine. And and, and we don't take seriously enough the truth of God's word. Let me read it to you again, my friends. And listen to it now with what, with what you learned this evening. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing? I don't really like that word sharing, to be honest. A a union with the body of Christ. By the way, that word there, some of you may know the word. I don't usually say Greek from the pulpit, but that's the word koinonia. I think you've probably heard that word before. Fellowshipping, right? The union. Is there not that koinonia with the body of Christ? Paul sees the union that takes place between the body and blood of Christ and a sinner a believing sinner at the Lord's Supper as something very deep, very serious, and very mysterious. My friends, it's like entering the Holy of Holies. I can't help but think of those men, those 70 elders, Moses and Aaron, as they went up that mountain. This should be something of the spirit with which we partake of the Lord's Supper. Because as they went up that mountain, they knew, my friends, that they were walking on holy ground. They had heard God specifically command Moses that if anybody, even so much as a beast, touches this mountain, they will be destroyed immediately. And now God says, come up the mountain to me. 
How many of us partake of the Lord's Supper in that spirit? Again, it's become so commonplace amongst us. And my friends, I I preach to myself this evening that when I stand before that table and when I break that bread, do I have a sense and do you have a sense of what's taking place in that moment? Heaven comes down to earth. It is a deeply serious and practical thing. You know, in the the coming Lord's Days, we hope to talk about uh, the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation where they believe, right, that the bread really becomes the body and blood of Christ. My friends, may I make bold to say that the reformers, Calvin especially, would have been more happy with the error of transubstantiation than with the error of so many in our day, and and maybe us, ourselves, of the rather, rather casual way that we partake of the Lord's Supper. Our our reformers had a deep and profound sense. Again, you see that reflected in our catechism this evening. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood? We don't even use language like that anymore, do we? We just don't. we, We might say, where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper? But how many of us really would say to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood? that we are really brought into that kind of union with Christ's body and blood. Well, my friends, then as I close the sermon, what should we do at the Lord's Supper? How should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? I mean, so I said clearly one way not to do it, right, that we should do it with a profound sense of the reality that is taking place. But what should we do? May I give you some very practical directions on how to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to God's glory. And perhaps you've picked up bad habits here. I don't know, my friends. It's very easy to do. Well, the first thing that you should do when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, my friends, is you should be looking. The Lord's Supper is a visible sign of an invisible grace. That means, my friends, you shouldn't be looking out the window or looking around to see who's at church that morning or or to see the new... uh, the new outfit that so-and-so is wearing this week. Sorry, I don't mean to make light of these things, but it's true, isn't it? I and mean, that's sometimes how we think. You should be focused. You should be focused like a laser on what is taking place on that table. God means for you to see it. Parents, if you have children, you should make sure that your children see it. I don't object at all to parents letting their children stand on the bench so they can see what the pastor is doing at that table. Why? Because I know what will happen. I have children too. They get home they say, Dad, what was that all about? My friends, what a teaching opportunity to take your children aside and to say, God came down from heaven this morning and gave us the Lord Jesus Christ as an atonement for our sins. Now, of course, you explain that to your children in a way they can understand it. But the Lord's Supper is meant to be seen, my friends. And you can't be blessed by the Lord's Supper if you don't see it. But secondly, and more importantly, my friends, that in the Lord's Supper... You are not just a passive observer, a passive participant. That's a contradiction, a passive participant, isn't it? You're not just a passive observer. You are an active participant. That means there's something for you to do. You see, so many times in church, right, uh, when I'm up here preaching, I'm explaining something, right, and you're taking it in. You're more or less passive. Now, you can be an active listener. I I understand that. But more or less, you're receiving the instruction I'm giving. 
But in the Lord's Supper, it changes, my friends. That's why when I'm down there in front of that table, I don't teach you something new, right, at the Lord's table. But at the Lord's table, that is the time that we actively covenant directly with God himself. If God comes down, my friends, in heaven, if heaven comes down to earth when the Lord's Supper is served, then that's the time for us to deal directly with God himself. Now, of course, in in our celebration of the sacrament, you can follow the meditation that I might be giving you at that moment. But even if that all falls aside, my friends, which sometimes can happen, you directly covenant with God. You are not a a passive observer. You are an active participant. Again, I, I just set before you, my friends, that woman, that Canaanitish woman. Was, was she anything like passive? I mean, that's, that's laughable, isn't it? I mean, this woman was active, persevering, pushing, answering, countering. Right? She would not let Jesus go unless she had the blessing. And in the same way, my friends, at the supper of the Lord, we take hold of God. Think of Jacob, how he prevailed with God, right? Why? Because he said, Lord, I will not let you go except you bless me. Now, there's a God-honoring celebration of the Supper of the Lord. We actively covenant. We, you might say we have, a, we have transaction with God himself. It's as if at the, like when, we, when you bought your house, you sat down to close with the buyer, with the realtor, right? And in that sense, God comes down with his covenant. And we actively step forward. We take that covenant in our hands of faith. We sign our names to it. We fall at Jesus' feet and we say, Lord, save me. Lord, that is a covenant that I need. Those are the terms, the only terms upon which I can be saved. And so, my friends, I I urge you, when the supper is served, that you have a direct, active, vigorous, reaching out in faith to God. And again, let that woman be your guide. Let that Canaanitish woman, isn't that interesting, a Canaanitish woman, what could we possibly learn from a Canaanitish woman? A woman under the curse. And yet, my friends, she teaches us, and Jesus said her faith was great. That's how we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Think of the king welcoming you to his table. Right? Let the pastor fall into the background, because again, at the Lord's Supper, I'm with you, my friends. I'm just, I'm just another participant in the Lord's Supper. But the king himself welcomes you to a place at his table. And of course, there are those times, my friends, when God gives us, especially in a special experiential way, to taste of the mercies that he gives us there, that he represents there. But many times, we talked about this this morning, many times we do come and we go. We didn't feel anything particularly special. We were not touched by anything particularly special. But for all that, my friends, That does not change in the least what took place that Sunday morning. And that every time, regardless of what you feel, regardless of how many tears you may have shed or not shed, God comes down to earth. God enters this building. Now, in a sense, I understand that God enters this building every time the word is preached, but in a special, mysterious, and unique way. God comes down in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And he gives himself to us. What a profound and special thing that is, my friends, if we would think of it. So I want to give you just those two instructions. First, be able to see what's happening. Second, covenant. Deal directly with God himself. Reach out for him 
and take him by faith. That is the God-honoring way of celebrating the Lord's Supper. My friends, I pray that in this way, what the Catechism has said to us would become reality in our lives. That Christ would nourish and refresh us with his body and blood. That's such a blessing, my friends, as we walk through this earth. and We meet with so many things that are discouraging. Our faith it weakens. We falter. We stumble. But every time and again, God spreads the table. And he says, come, sinner. Here is a broken body and shed blood for you. And we are strengthened, refreshed to go forward and to do his work. May God grant that for his name's sake. Let us pray. Lord, we draw near to you this evening hour to confess, Lord, that we have often treated the sacrament of the Holy Supper with far too much, uh, far too casually. As a routine thing, Lord, that we could take or leave. Lord, we repent of it. We're ashamed of it. What a profound gift it is to us that you will refresh our souls by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray that you would bless us in the coming week as we continue to study this doctrine, but not any longer so much from an experiential perspective, but from a more theological and even controversial perspective. But even there, Lord, the truths are so weighty and so real and so wonderful that we cannot help but be astonished at your goodness to us, Lord, that every time again the table is spread and the call goes forth, come, remember, take, eat, and believe that the body of Christ was broken for a complete forgiveness of all our sins. Lord, we've heard those words so many times, but they never grow old to us. They're always fresh, always wonderful, so full of light and meaning and truth and so much joy they bring to our souls. Lord, renew in us a fresh appreciation for the glory and the beauty of this sacrament. We commit ourselves into your hands this evening, Lord, and pray for your blessing to be upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, now sing, in closing, uh, from the blue hymnal, number 33. Number 33. Now the king in thy strength shall be joyful, O Lord. Thy salvation shall make him rejoice for the wish of his heart. Thou didst freely accord the request of his suppliant voice. So we'll sing verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 of number 33 in the blue hymnal.
Oh, and now the doxology will be from the red hymnal, number 150b. Doxology, verse 1 of 150b in the red hymnal. Well, let's receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.